Heavenly Father, I am burdened to uh, bring your message to Restore Church and the others viewing online, uh, the message that you have for us today from this passage. Lord, I've, I've prepared uh, the best I can, but it is inadequate and, and, and imperfect, and it's really um, you that this message is, is about, Lord, and so I pray that you bring out the truths that you would like us to hear, even as I'm speaking, to, to press those into my heart and to lodge those into our hearts, and the things that are just my opinion or asides or, or things that are not from you, Lord, I, I pray that, that you would just dismiss those outright, Lord, and, and I just pray, as the psalmist did, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All right, for, for those who would like to follow along in your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 17. It will also be up in, on the screen momentarily. Um, but uh, I'd like to start out the, the message today with a simple question. What is your calling? What is your calling? Do you find that, that question to be particularly difficult? Maybe it's one that you wrestled with uh, for a long time. Maybe God has given you some direction in some areas or maybe a lot of direction in other areas. Or you wish that he would give you more direction in areas. Uh, prior to studying this text, I longed to hear from God on an answer to this question. When I became a Christian overseas, I believed God was calling me to be part of a church plant. And I didn't know at the time, but... Uh, God really wanted me to be around, surrounded by godly men who could mold me and shape me. And so I am deeply grateful for, for men like Pastors Cleet, Pastor Charles, Pastor Mike, uh, and others that have come through Restore that have taken part in shepherding and molding and, and uh, correcting me at times uh, as well. Um, I came to Detroit, too, because I sensed God calling me here. Uh, additionally, when I was single, I thought that God was calling me to singleness. And then I got married and thought, oh, well, of course, God's calling me to marry Katie. Um, I had and still have a burden for the lost, particularly those who uh, do not have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I actually thought that God, by this, this point, would have called me into the international mission field. So sometimes I wish that God would make it clear, like he did with some of the prophets that we read about in the, in the Bible, where he calls Samuel, the prophet Samuel, by night, calls him by name and tells him what to do. Same with Isaiah, gives him a vision about what to do and what to say and what people to go to. Or even like King David, where the prophet Samuel anointed his head with oil to uh, proclaim him as king. And the other kings were, were similar in that regard. Perhaps you have a story like mine called in many different directions, not really having the full clarity that you desire. So the, the prayer, just tell me what to do, God, is, was a constant prayer for me, and perhaps it was for you as well. Now, this isn't strictly limited to, to Christians. Many people uh, in our country and worldwide are looking for deeper purpose, deeper meaning in life, uh, something ultimate. In fact, in preparing for this message, I looked up uh, different, different quotes and many of them uh, were from non-Christians about calling. So that was interesting to me. Uh, it makes sense because of that, that looking for that satisfaction, looking for that purpose. Um, in fact, this type of longing helps to explain why many people make 
abrupt and sudden drastic changes in their lives. For example, the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that the average uh, employer in, uh, employee in America uh, spends about four and a half, 4.4 years with their employer before switching jobs. When you get to millennials, younger crowd, that uh, statistic is even lower, three years. And so a big reason for that is looking for satisfaction, looking for, for purpose in their, in their work. Uh, midlife crises is a real phenomenon for a lot of people because they look back on their life and they see, oh, was my life really that significant? Maybe I need to make some drastic change in the latter half of my life. Well, let me ask the question that I think is answered in this text, uh, as we'll see on the screen. Um, Oh, good, it is there. Um, are we making this question difficult because we're doing God's job? So as you look at that passage, so it's been up there for a little while, what things stand out to you there? I helped you because I emboldened it and underlined it. Um, so the first thing that I notice is, is called is mentioned eight times, the word call. But it's important to ask, who's in control of the calling? Who's the caller? God is the, the caller. We are the recipient of it, which means that God is the one in control. We're not in control of the calling. God is. Uh, this is, is known in Proverbs as well, it, actually throughout the Bible, but just highlighting a couple of verses in Proverbs. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And similarly, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That's in Proverbs 16, if you want to check that out. So there's a magnificent sovereignty in our calling. The second thing you notice is that of the eight times, seven of those times actually refers to our call to salvation. I refer to this as our big C calling. The first time, lead the life the Lord that has assigned to him and to which God has called him, refers to our, this actually, this actually refers to our situation in life, our lot in life, what we're actually doing in life. So this is the exception there. Um, I call this the, the little C calling. And so focusing on the big C calling, uh, just to elaborate a bit more, in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, Paul referred to this uh, in saying, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then Peter makes this clear also in another letter. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's in 1 Peter 5.10. And then it, actually in another verse in 1 Peter, he talks about God calling us from darkness into life. So we have this calling from darkness into light, calling into fellowship with Jesus Christ, calling into his eternal glory. That is this big C called salvation, our eternal position if we are in Christ. So the other calling that I mentioned before, that refers to our lot in life, our identity, our vocation, those things. I'll, I'll expound on those a bit more, but Paul guides us through the passage um, in this text as well. Um, this is our temporal position. Now let's go back to the question I asked earlier. What is your calling? How many of you, 
thought of the big C calling, the call to salvation when I asked that question? Vincent, great job. I did not. And I think it sounds like most of, of the church here did not, thought of the, the little C calling. And this gets to the heart of Paul's point here in this text. We tend to over-spiritualize the little C calling and under-spiritualize the big C calling. Our viewpoint on the big C calling is, is finite. It's, it's in the past. We look at the, the point that we were saved, and then, we, and then we live our lives out. Or we look in the front view where we look to our future hope in Christ. It's these, these points that we're not in right now. So it is those points. I don't, I don't want to disregard that. For sure it's those points. But it's also right now as well. It's the lifeblood that flows into every decision and every action and every thought that we have of every day. And this is illustrated in uh, Jeremiah 17, 7, 8. There's a parallel text in Psalm 1 that maybe many of you are familiar with, but I'll read from Jeremiah. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. And so another point comes out of this. It is the big C calling that gives our little C calling significance. So our, our viewpoint on the little C calling, though, is, is huge. We think of that big employment change or, or job uh, path that we've got to go down to. Should I marry this person? Should I not marry this person? Should I even be married? Should I move to this city? Should I not move to the city? Should I stay where I'm at? All of those questions. So again, we tend to over-spiritualize the little C calling and under-spiritualize the big C calling. It would be like spending our entire lives preparing for and planning the wedding and thinking of the marriage as an afterthought. And, and hear me on this analogy. The wedding matters, but it's the marriage that gives the wedding significance. And in the same way, the little C calling, our lot in life, what we're doing, all of those things matter, our identity, our vocation, um, all of those things matter, but it's the big C calling that gives all of them significance. So in this text, Paul is telling the Corinthians and us that we have the view of calling backwards. So your big C calling should be the priority. That should be what shines in and through your little C calling. So now I'm going to walk us through the text. I'm going to start with the overarching principle, what Paul calls his rule for all the, the churches. Then I'm going to go over three ways that we flip calling, and then I'll, I'll finish with the motivation to live this out. All right, so 1 Corinthians 7, 17, the principle. And so it said, Paul says here, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So what this verse does is it simplifies and provides the answer to the questions of our small c calling. And so I'm going to take a poll here. All of the people who are single, raise your hand. Okay, all the people who are married, raise your hand. Okay, great. For the single people who raise their hand when I ask that question, your calling is singleness. For the married people who raise their hand, when I ask that question, your calling is marriage. For those who didn't raise their hand on either question, I'm not quite sure what your calling is. 
<laughs> something to wrestle with. But it does make these questions easier. How about the job that you're, you're in? What is your calling? The job you're in right now. That's your calling. The city that you're living and ministering in, the one you are in now, that is your calling. So Paul's not saying here, I want to clarify, that the situation can never change. As we saw in, in Mike's preaching last week on the topic of marriage, and we'll, we'll see um, the topic of singleness as well, uh, and we'll break down in the text uh, additionally a little bit later on. But he's saying your little C calling is the situation you're in right now. The burden for us is lifted, and that should give us great peace. Because no matter how significant we think our life is in the world's eyes, it is the little C calling being lived in and through our big C calling that matters to God. So let me give you a few examples from the Bible. How significant, for those of you who are familiar, how significant do you think Ruth's, Ruth felt after her husband died and uh, she was taking care of her mother-in-law who was an Israelite and she, she has a Moabite? In a culture where uh, widows were not really taken care of at all and so there wasn't a lot of hope for her uh, probably poverty in the future, that sort of thing. How significant do you think she felt at that moment? And yet, God provided for her a husband, Boaz. Now, again, that's a normal thing. A lot of people get married, so what's significant about that? Well, two things. One is he, he was her redeemer. That has some significant theological purposes in, in the Bible. But in addition to that, even more significantly, is that now she became part of the royal line to Jesus through that, that marriage, through her situation. So God used her situation to have eternal impact and eternal significance. Another example, how, how significant do you think Joseph uh, was in Genesis where uh, his brothers, jealous brothers, sold him into slavery? And then even as he was working himself up uh, in, in terms of position there, he was thrown into jail for years for a crime they never committed. So how significant do you think he felt his life was in those moments? And yet God used all of the evil that was done to him to bring about a great salvation for his people. We must remember that we see through a mirror dimly. We don't see the whole plan. Your actions as a faithful Christ follower have great power for eternity as you live out the life God has assigned for you. And that should give us all Great encouragement. All right, so now I'm going to go into the three ways that we get it backwards. And the first is identity. And so these, this is from verses 18 to 19. So Paul is talking to the Corinthians here about circumcision and uncircumcision. And so it, it's helpful to provide a bit of text. So what's going on? Well, there's new Gentile Christians that were being pressured or even being incentivize themselves to go about the ritual practice of circumcision. And circumcision traces back to a Jewish rite that goes to Abraham the patriarch in a covenant to God that all of his descendants now would also adhere to. So all the Israelites did this. This was a big deal for Israelites, big source of pride. It, it actually set them apart from the heathen Gentiles. And so now Gentile Christians were pressured to do that. And then you may be asking, what on earth is uncircumcision? Which I asked as well, <laughs> had no idea. And so this is something where 
uh, it's a surgical procedure to remove or to cover over the marks of circumcision so it wouldn't be apparent or obvious that you were circumcised. So why on earth would Corinthians be concerned about this? Well, it, in the Greco-Roman culture, there were more opportunities or avenues for male nudity uh, in that culture. So think of like the gymnasiums and exercises and that sort of thing. So there could have been some sort of outcasting or stereotyping or uh, you know, ostracization of individuals that were not like the other males. So that could be one. It's also possible that there was such a pushback on circumcision in the, in the early church that the right of circumcision was actually disdained. And so Christians were, were Jewish Christians were then pressured to remove the marks. That's another possibility. Um, so that gives you a bit, bit of context. Okay, so how, how, does, how does that, what does that mean for us? Um, well, Paul is not taking sides here, right? And so the, the Corinthians brought up this issue to him, and he, and he said, I'm not taking, it. neither one of them matters. What, what matters is your obedience to God. Circumcision, uncircumcision doesn't mean anything. So that's kind of a dust statement for us in the 21st century America. For us, circumcision really doesn't mean anything. For those of us who are parents of, of male children, might have been a, a form that we filled out or chose not to fill out at the hospital. But for the first century Jew, this statement was deeply, deeply offensive because it struck at the heart of their identity. The, the right of circumcision set them apart, as I mentioned earlier, in the family of God. So that's what showed them as the true heir of God. It was a source of pride. For a non-Jew, it meant the weight of the Mosaic law being placed on their shoulders. So what is Paul saying exactly? He's saying the big C calling is what matters here. The circumcision, the uncircumcision, means nothing for salvation. What matters is obedience to God. So what, are, what is the modern cultural implications of identity that can cause us, even in the church, to flip the focus on little c calling and big c calling? Well, I think in October 2020 in America, it seems apparent that it's things like race, ethnicity, nationality, gender. We may be deceived by the need to change certain things or adopt certain cultures after we become a Christian in order to be right, or we may be pressured to read certain books in order to understand and, and be better acclimated, that sort of thing, or to cross over into other cultures, picking up pieces here, dropping other pieces here. Or from the American sense, and this, is, this is, has a lot of history behind it, we may be pressured to give an Americanized gospel and and exalt the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, and things like that as this is what it means to be Christian. Look at God's favored nation, things like that. So there's a lot of pressure in different areas to flip the, the seas on, uh, on calling. So what's God saying to us in this passage? It's helpful to look at Galatians 3.28 that may give some insight. There is no Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we're all one. We're all unified in the body. So 
obviously there are distinctives in these categories. Paul is already talking about circumcision. Male and female has distinctives as it relates to marriage and headship and pastoring a church. There are distinctives between slave and free, as Paul elaborates later in the text. But what's the significance of each as it relates to eternity? And that's the question that we should ask. Let's put it another way. Do you get into heaven because you're American? Because you're male? Because you're female? Because you're black? Because you're white? Because you're Hispanic? Because you're Asian? Do any of those things tip the scales? Of course not. What matters is the big C calling. So, so now that we've got that reset, it's helpful to know, okay, well, what's the purpose of those distinctives? And so now our mind should go to Revelation 7, 9 to 10, where we get this beautiful picture of the diversity in front of the throne of God. And so I'll read it for you so we can get that picture ourselves. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what's the difference here? Well, we're all one in Christ. So why are there distinctives in heaven before the throne? This is the reason. Because the glory of the diversity that God created us in manifested uh, externally in our individual identities that you send to each of us, they all reflect back to him. They're, they give him the glory. There's no, there's no boasting in what you've been assigned. But now God redeems our fallen identities and our fallen attempts to exalt our identities or, or corrupt our identities or, or manipulate or change those. He takes all of that to show the magnificence of his glorious grace in the mosaic of his big C church. So that's identity. So now we're going to move on to vocation. Okay, so this is verses 20 to 21. And so Paul here is talking about bond servitude. And so again, this is a, a passage that may be challenging for us if, if we're not familiar with the context. So to give you a bit of context, in Corinth there was a wide gulf between uh, it, particularly in wealth between rich and poor with large numbers of bond servants and freedmen, the majority of the believers there were actually of the lower class. So bond servant was actually a term that applied to a lot of the believers in this church. But there were also ma masters or owners of bond servants in this church as well. So the first question we should ask is, what is a bond servant? So we're all on the same page. So this comes from gotquestions.org, which is a Christian ministry. Uh, this is what it says. In some Bibles, the, the word bondservant is the translation of the Greek word doulos, which means one who is subservient to and entirely at the disposal of his master, a slave. Other translations use the word slave or servant. Then it goes on to say, in Roman times, the term bondservant or slave could refer to someone who voluntarily served others, but it usually referred to one who was held in a permanent position of servitude. Under Roman law, a bondservant was considered the owner's personal property. Slaves essentially had no rights and could even be killed with impunity by their owners. That's the end of that, that quote. So 
it's important to note here, because we're looking at this from a, from a 21st century American vantage point, there are distinctives between the historical bond servitude or slavery in, in uh, Corinth uh, and American slavery. Namely, American slavery was always involuntarily, involuntary. It was racially based. Uh, it involved in, enslavement or, or capturing a, of men and women, which is condemned in 1 Timothy uh, verses 1-10. Uh, and then also it was extremely difficult or impossible to earn freedom. So just to, to go on those distinctives, but Paul's larger point here is one of status and vocation in society. Bond servants were the lowest in society. And so what are the implications uh, for us today? Well, it means that you have freedom from the weight of choosing the right job. So we have a burden of choice in our culture today where there's countless majors, countless different jobs we can choose, countless trades, easy mobility. Talked about the stats before of how, how many people do change jobs, but now we're free from that, that weight and that burden because regardless of the job, we can live out our big C calling through that. You're stuck in a, in a lousy job. Well, Paul says, don't be concerned about it. You can still live out your big C calling in and through that job. What about if you're in a great or some exalted job? Well, remember that Jesus is your master. So he is the ultimate owner. And so that's who you're appealing to. That's, that's how you're living that out. Or what about if, can I change jobs? We mentioned this earlier. Can I change my situation? Can I change jobs? This is where we dive into that parenthetical note uh, that you see there. Um, that I think is helpful. Uh, Paul says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So most of the time, for, for most commentators, this is understood as it's plainly stated. If you're a bondservant or a slave and you can become free, do it. Uh, there's another viewpoint that translates it roughly this way. Uh, and th this comes from John Piper. Don't let that, meaning slavery, be a care to you, but even if you can become a freedman, Rather, make use of your present position. So the argument for that, it lines up a bit better with the original Greek. Uh, it lines up better with the text. But in, in either case, I'm no Greek scholar. I just wanted to, to give you those, those alternatives. Uh, for our purposes today, whether it encourages the exiting of bond servitude or it simply tells the, the Corinthians to make use of their present condition, whether or not they will eventually become free, the implication for us can be, a, can be broadly applied vocationally. Make big use of your vocation, whether you remain in your current job or, or you seek another one or you change jobs. And we know that changing jobs is acceptable. Paul changed jobs after he was converted. Jesus changed from being a, a carpenter to a, a traveling teacher. Uh, King David went from being a shepherd to a, a soldier and commander and then eventually a king. And just to, just to comment, though, because uh, that, that is allowed, seems like the pastoral tenor of this passage is to seek opportunities to live out your life in Christ through the job that you're at. So that seems to be the tenor of the passage, but obviously there are opportunities to change. And so just to elaborate on that more, the exa example that most prominently strikes this chord comes from Luke 3. So in Luke 3, John the Baptist is preaching about the coming Messiah, and he's telling the people there to uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so soldiers and tax collectors, 
not exactly uh, occupations that you would consider totally in line with the gospel, they ask him, okay, what shall we do? It's notable that, that John the Baptist doesn't tell them to leave their positions. Instead, he tells them to obey God through their positions. Namely, don't extort money. Don't take more than what is owed. Be content with your wages, that sort of thing. And so the, the, the point is clear. Remember, the commandments of God is what counts. Obedience to God is what matters. Okay, so the third area that we get this flip is your lot. And so this, this relates to, to, to slavery and freedom, so I'll expound on that a bit more. But I also want to connect you to the reality that in 1 Corinthians 7, this passage is interspersed between, or placed between, uh, passages about marriage and singleness. So it almost seems oddly placed, but Paul is making a broad point here, but that can be attributed to the Corinthians here are looking for major life changes. They think, oh, I'm you know, now I'm a Christian, I'm married, I should seek to become unmarried, or, you know, what do I do about marriage? Those questions. Um, so that's a bit of the context about life conditions. So I mentioned earlier that I believed I was called to singleness after I became a Christian in 2011. So God gave me this wonderful comfort and peace during that time and afterwards to just accept the condition that I was in. I thought it was permanent. I was wrong. And that's wonderful. That's a wonderful thing. Um, but the contentment during that time was incredible. I really believed that God, if he wanted me to be married, could create a woman out of the floorboards and present her to me. <laughs> He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. He can do anything that he wants. And so he just gave me incredible peace about it. So I didn't concern myself with it. Pastor Mike, in a very wise way, pushed back a bit and challenged the permanence of the calling and said that perhaps uh, this is not a permanent calling. It could be, but perhaps it's, it's more of a season uh, that God is taking you through uh, because of your history of sexual immorality, so a season of purification. And that turned out to be correct. Uh, the, the time between when, when God called me initially uh, overseas to my marriage to Katie was a grace-filled a passage of, of purification, sanctification that prepared me better for marriage. So that, that personal story, though, gives me quite a bit of clarity about this text uh, because I was enslaved to sin, particularly sexual sin, but not just sexual sin. Jesus freed me from that. Now as a free person, I am enslaved to Christ, and that is wonderful. So, so for those of you wrestling with this, how can it be wonderful to be enslaved to somebody? And the reason is because Jesus is a gracious and merciful and wise and perfect master. My former slave master was cruel. Sin inverted me to seeking more sin and becoming less me and more like my idols. Jesus instead said, come to me, all who, are la all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, me and Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For those of us who are in Christ and have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, how true do we know those words to be? In enslavement to sin, I became increasingly depraved and vile. Many of you, I'm sure, can, can relate, or at least some of you can. In enslavement to Christ, though, I am becoming increasingly more of a glorified version of John Glandon. C.S. Lewis notes this dynamic uh, when he muses, 
how monotonously alike all the great tyrants and conquerors have been, how gloriously different are the saints. And think about all the magnificent and varied histories and stories of the saints uh, in scripture and in history. Uh, one am amazing example that I came across was about a couple of saints um, that was retold by Richard Wormbrand. So this was in Voice of the Martyrs, October 2020 issue. Uh, Richard Wormbrand himself has an amazingly glorious life where he was imprisoned uh, for his Christian witness um, and faith in uh, communist Romania. But this, this is what he describes. I think of a young girl of our R Romanian underground church whose activities were discovered by the secret police. She had been guilty of secretly distributing gospels and teaching children about Christ. To make her arrest as painful as possible, they decided to wait a few weeks for her wedding day. When she was dressed for the event every woman looks forward to, the police suddenly broke in. Anticipating their intentions, she held out her hands, which they handcuffed roughly, looked lovingly at her groom, then kissed the chain, saying, I thank my heavenly bridegroom for this jewel he has presented to me on my marriage day. I thank him that I am worthy to suffer for him. She was dragged off to prison, leaving behind weeping Christians and a weeping bridegroom. Five years later, she was released, haggard, broken, looking 30 years older. She had remained faithful, and her intended had waited for her. See, if you're called to salvation in Christ, your individual glorified story is one of those magnificent streams that will echo for eternity, as long as we keep our eyes focused on the big sea calling. Now to, now to close, I want to wrap up with the, the motivation Paul gives us to live this out, where he tells us that you were bought with a price, so do not become bondservants of men. So what does this mean? It means we have a new value. We have a new owner. The value of the thing is determined by the price paid for it, what was the price that God paid for your sins, for my sins? It was the perfect, priceless blood of his son, Jesus. If you have a big C calling, it was Jesus that paid the penalty that you deserve, that I deserve. It was Jesus who became a curse so that we could be a blessing. It was Jesus that was forsaken by God so we could be united to God. It was Jesus who bore the lashes and the nails and the crown of thorns so that our small sea calling could have eternal impact. This means that we are not our own. Our small sea calling is not our own. It belongs to Jesus. He owns us. He owns our calling. What would it look like if every day in every situation, each one of us asked ourselves, how do I do this thing with God? How would that change our interactions with our spouse? How would that change our interactions with our colleagues or our boss at work? How would that change in terms of our treatment of our neighbors or our treatment of, of strangers, for that matter? How would it change things about witnessing and prayer? We can do all of these things and, and much more, regardless of what our small c calling is. All these things that I mentioned are all, all applications you can apply. Now, for those of, of you that are listening or, or online who have never responded to the big C calling of salvation, do not belong to Christ. If that's you, what this verse 
behind me means about being bought with a price. It means that you have a debt to pay. You cannot pay it. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. That's the price Jesus paid. It's too high for you to be able to work for it. You cannot afford it no matter what good you do, no matter your vocation. See, the wedding doesn't matter if there is no marriage. Your little C calling doesn't matter if there's no big C calling. The same, the same verse that I referenced, though, in Romans 6.23 does go on, though. It says that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you have an opportunity to accept it, to answer that call. You can respond to that call today. Today is the day of salvation. You're not here by accident. You're not listening by accident. If Jesus is calling you, don't wait. We're not promised tomorrow. That, that is for sure. By responding to God's big sea call of salvation, your identity, your vocation, your circumstances, they all have meaning. Not just for the next five years, not just for this lifetime, but for the next five million years, for all of eternity. The, the significance of our lives that is the significance of our lives for those of us who are in Christ. Not, not because of us, not because of a, a result of our works that we can boast in anything, but because of the one who has called you into his eternal glory. So Paul reminds the Corinthians of this significance in 1 Corinthians 15:58. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul is reminding the gospel-forgetting Corinthians and the gospel-forgetting restore church members of their big C calling. In whatever identity, whatever vocation, whatever condition you find yourself in, your big C calling is what gives it meaning. So live an ordinary life that is extraordinarily faithful to that calling. So I'll close this in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this word and for, for your scripture and for this passage. I pray that you would lodge in our hearts this big sea calling of salvation. Let that be the, the stream that we continually drink from and, and grow from. May our, may our leaves be evergreen and our fruit be ever bountiful, Lord. May you make that happen. May you remind us of the big sea calling. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.